Season two of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Have you thought any more about what we discussed? Thought any more, meaning reconsidered? No. So show me the flaw in it. Ah, flaws, Skylar. Flaws, plural, not singular. (laughs) Now, where do you want me to start? Hey, I don't love this situation, all right, that you put me in. However, let's just stick with what makes sense here. Paul, we've been doing a lot of talking about theory lately, so let's just stick with what makes sense here, and that's, in this case, numbers. I like it. We've got one paper. We're looking at one study. We're not having to dive too deep down the rabbit hole. I'm all about it. Simplifying. It's a good thing. Um, Today, the paper that we're looking at is called Anthropometry. I think that's how you say that word. I've heard people say it several ways, but Anthropometry and Performance Characteristics of Recreational Advanced to Elite Female Rock Climbers. Authors are David Giles, Kimberly Barnes, Nicola Taylor, Corinna Chidley, Joel Chidley, James Mitchell, Ollie Tor, Edward Gibson Smith, and Vanessa Espana Romero. Um, a lot of names we've seen quite a bit over this season, which is great. I love seeing those collaborations. It was in the Journal of Sports Sciences 2020. And the, the purpose of this paper essentially is to, number one, explore differences in experience, anthropometric, and performance characteristics between three ability groups of experienced female climbers, and two, to determine which of these characteristics best explain the variability in self-reported sport and bouldering climbing performance. I think I said that correctly. Checks out. I'm reading it. Looks great. All right, let's uh, let's jump into this thing. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Look, you two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready, 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 ready? I am so ready. The sun's down. It's apocalyptically hot in Chattanooga. I've been hiding from the sun for two days now. Um, we're good. It's like 95 degrees. It feels like a you know cold snap here. We're good to go. How about you? Man, I was going to ask you how hot it was there because I was about to say it's hot here, so I'm ready. And I know it's way hotter where you are. Hey, but it's hot, my- but it's humid. So we're good. Yeah, you are crazy humid (laughs) down there. Uh, My brain does hurt a little from talking about embodied perception and focus of attention theories. Um, So I'm definitely ready for something that at least seems more concrete. And we are joined again by our esteemed colleague, coach and data analyst, Dale Wilson. Um, Are you feeling ready, Dale? Super ready. So ready. Good. Being being a guy who I imagine can find comfort in the exactness of numbers, would you call them concrete? Is that a fair description? Would I call them concrete? Oh, man. I think it's too late for this. Um, <laughs> I'd call concrete concrete. Um, <laughs> that's a rough one. I like numbers. I'll leave it at that. Okay. They are comforting. We're off to a running start. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Accept that answer. Um, Paul, how about you run us through the methods? In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just flip a coin. Cool. So this all happened, it seems like, at the Women's Climbing Training Symposium in Sheffield, the United Kingdom, around February 2019. Um the subject number was around 55, or not around, it was 55 individuals, all women. Numbers are concrete, Paul, not around. That's right. <laughs> Dale's throwing me <laughs> off, man. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so 55 individuals, all female. Um, the general uh, performance characteristics of this group was from 
you know, V0 to V9 and 10C to 13C. I'm going to break that down in a little more detail as we move into these methods. But so these 55 individuals were invited to participate in the study as part of this workshop during the Women's Climbing Training Symposium event. And so what they did is they took these individuals and split them into three different groups based on their self-reported maximum red point ability of their preferred discipline. And then they looked at a bunch of different measures, so including height and arm span, body mass, skin fold thickness, forearm volume, adductor flexibility, shoulder mobility, upper and lower body power, and then finger flexor strength. And they looked at all these in random order. But after the self-reported climbing ability, they broke these these individuals into three different groups. We had your advanced lower, which consisted of 13 people. Um, their sport climbing on site. They used uh, the IRCRA measures, so around 13.6, which breaks down to 10D slash 11A. Uh, their sport red point, which is 15.9, which gives us around 11C if we're looking at the uh, Yosemite scale. And then their boulder on site was uh, you know, around 16, which gives us around V3. And then their boulder red point, which gives us V3 slash V4. So that was the advanced lower group, and there are 13 people in that group. There was okay. also an advanced higher group, which if we look into the IRCRA measures, their sport on-site was around 14 and a half, which gives us 11C, 11AB. Um, their sport red point was around 16 and a half, which gives us 11CD. Boulder on-site was close to 18, which gives us around V4. And their boulder red point is around 19, which gives us close to V5. And then finally, there are 14 of this overall 55 individuals who are the elite, which gives us our uh, sport on-site around 16 and a half, which gives us 11 CD. Uh, sport red point, which gives us around 12 BC or 19 and a half if we're going by IRCRA measures. And then their boulder on-site, V4, V5. If we go back to IRCRA, mm -hmm. around 18 and a half. And then boulder red point around V6, V7, which is close to 21 on the IRCRA scale. Again, there's some blurry zones there. There's always going to be blurry zones. Just trying to give you all a rough approximation of where we're at. So what they did is they looked at all these measures, which is um, which just to review... Height and arm span, body mass, skin fold thickness, forearm volume, adductor flexibility, shoulder mobility, upper and lower body power, and then finger flexor strength. And they just looked at these measures and set and explored if that related to explaining where these people fell in these groups and how hard they climbed. Yeah, and they collected uh, health history and climbing experience, mm. things like that beforehand. Um, I'm curious, Paul. I didn't see anywhere in the paper. Um, I wonder why they're not using the, the the levels that it breaks out to in the IRCRA scale, which is like advanced, elite, higher elite. Um, but there is no lower advanced and higher advanced. I wonder if I wonder why they didn't just stick to the same name that that scale already calls them. I wonder. So this is what this is a 2019 paper, or am I just wrong there? Uh, 2020, 2020 okay. I think. Yeah. So yeah, that is a really good question because the paper... It's almost as if the grading scales are difficult to define in a concrete <laughs> way. That's strange. You don't say, Dale. Those numbers aren't concrete? Almost <clears throat> like it's a little subjective and maybe needs occasional revising for different well, purposes. There, there's also a, a point in the methods I just want to point out while we're still here that I thought was interesting that they're, they took the red point and onsite number from the past six months. And that also bucks the trend that the three, 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 yep. the three, three, three rule that the IRCRA put forth. So I'm, I'm just curious about these things. I would love to ask these folks what, what those differences were and why. We just got to keep people and, on their toes. We need to change it every year. Right. I'm, and I'm not a fan of the 333 rule, so I'm not mad about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. One thing I really liked about the methods section of this paper is they had pictures explaining every single test, which is great. The pictures were great, actually. We don't have that sometimes. You just <laughs> have, you know, and I've talked about this in previous papers where, 
you know, I highlight a sentence. I'm like, okay, this is the craziest sentence I've ever read. Now I have to sit and yeah. think about what you actually mean by the sentence. Yeah. But you look at these pictures, you know exactly what they did to test it. You know how it went down and you're like, okay, cool. This makes sense. I know what they're looking at, how they explored this. And there's no ambiguity in my mind when I read this. So I thought that was something good mm-hmm. about this, met- this uh, method section. Yeah. And it's a pretty big battery of things that they're checking, mm-hmm. but they all, they all make sense in a, you know, in a climbing context in some way, shape or form. So I do think it's an interesting set of things to look at. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a quick commercial break. Um, some words from our sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition, and we will be right back. Please. All right, I really need a break here, okay? Let's be honest for a second. I'm not getting any younger or less stubborn. And as I approach my 50s with no plans to shelve my desire to continue climbing harder, I have to put a premium on products that are trustworthy, high value, and easy to implement. With careful use of gnarly creatine, collagen, and protein, I can get in more quality workouts with more power, and that means more and harder climbs. Win, win, win. Look it up, it's science. Use code BETA15, that's beta one five for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com, or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Yes, science. So I'll go back to work for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we have returned. We're going to get into the results found in this paper. Just before we even start in these results, were either of you surprised at the findings? I'm just curious. Not entirely. There's a few kind of cool measurements in here that I want to see, but I also want to see it like broken down by sex, not just inside of like... Uh, not just inside of the f- uh, female group. So one of the sure. like hypotheses that you like frequently hear, um, in terms of like there's a strength discrepancy for grades where, um, like a lot of women's strength metrics for the same grade like are significantly lower than like men's for that. And there's been this hypothesis thrown around that it's because right. they have like, um, significantly superior lower body mobility, um, like hip mobility, shoulder mobility, things like that. And mm-hmm. I was curious if they could do like a one way and over or something, um, like just between the, between like, uh, sex groups to kind of see that. Um, mm-hmm. so I wanted to see that, but it's obviously outside of the scope of the paper, but it, it, yeah, kind of like got me Jones in for seeing that in the future, which I'm sure they're going to release at some point. But. Yeah, totally. I sort of thought the same thing. Um, Paul, were you surprised by anything in here? Man, not particularly. I mean, we've done a good amount of these types of papers so far, and mm-hmm. I, it seems we're coming into a consensus, which is good. It's why we look at all these papers, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly what I thought. I wasn't really super surprised. Um, let's look at some of the general findings here. So generally speaking, um, though there's quite a bit of variation, they see that as the ability level rises – Age goes down, but experience goes up. So I think that's fairly expected. It doesn't mean that older or newer climbers can't get good, but the younger climbers who started earlier are going to have the advantage most of the time. It's hard to dispute. I think that shows like an interesting sociological side of our sport, right? You know, right Mm -hmm. now we're starting to see where the teams are starting younger. Kids are starting younger and climbing. So it kind of makes sense people who are exposed to this when they're, I mean, hell, we have people in Chattanooga who are starting the climbing team when they're five or six years old. I'm probably right. exaggerating, but probably not. Oh, I, I don't think you are. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. So it makes sense that you're going to see these higher level climbers start to show up as a younger age. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, so I don't think that shows anything maybe informative about performance characteristics. I think that's more of a sociological point. And yeah, my totally. Opinion. I also, th- I also think it's important to mention, you know, based on this note that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're better climbers. We're just looking at a red point here for the mm-hmm. last six months. Um, so it just means that they've red pointed higher, which could be a result of having more time, having fewer responsibilities. You know, if you're a younger climber, a lot of that's going to come into play. So yeah, also have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> um, Climbing hours per week 
is the only variable that differentiates between the advanced lower and advanced higher climbers, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting and, uh, you know, and could be potentially taken the wrong way. Like, oh my God, I'm already at the gym 30 hours a week. Now I need to be there 45. If you want to get know? better, climb nine days a week. It's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the converse side, it's becoming like, you always hear so much now about how dangerous volume is. And it's like yeah. some people show up and like do like two double unders and then try their project for five minutes and leave. <laughs> and totally it's like, it's like, Oh man, if I didn't have it in those five minutes, it's gone. So, I mean, kind of a that, joke, but also like swinging both ways on that. That's a new MED program right there. Minimal effective dose, three double unders, <laughs> try a project, go home. That's it. I just, I just come into the gym and I stare down my project and then I call it done. <laughs> The most minimal effective dose, MMED. <laughs> and, you know, and that leads us right into the next one, which is time spent training for climbing was significantly greater for the elites than for either advanced category. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I think this, this makes total sense. Of, of course, if you're, if you've spent more time training, especially since these elites are younger, they have more experience, you know, they're getting more movement time in. And they're also training for climbing. That's going to make a big difference. And, you know, intention and focus are always, you're going to get more out of that time if you go into things with a plan too. To mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Also the like skill aspects. So for like their uh, like upper body power, they're doing the like explosive campus slap portion of that. It's like, yep. I think if you're, if you're not pretty experienced with like campus boarding, it's kind of hard to, like have like a good coordinated control, that kind of movement. Totally. So it's like if you're the more exposure that you have to training time, the more likely you are to have already be, like built up that skill set in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in modern gyms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I thought this was was interesting and, you know, not surprising, but interesting. And I think it's great to have out there. In a study, there were no significant differences in height, body mass, BMI, forearm length, arm volume, leg span, or ape index mm -hmm. um, between any of the groups. And it's, it's just not the deciding factor like it might be in some other sports. Um, and, I, you know, I think we, that just has to be encouraging for people of all shapes and sizes that it's possible to be an elite climber and, and be still in a fairly wide range. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, we're starting yeah. to see, you know, more currents of this happen in the climbing community and realizing these mm -hmm. things and promoting more healthy behaviors along these fronts that, you know, maybe how you look or the percentage of your body fat isn't the most important thing. You know, right. back in the day that, you know, back in the back in the day, but maybe before I even started rock climbing, like that was part of it, right? You know, people wanted to be as light as possible to a dangerously healthy perspective of that. And um, it's good to see research that shows that that's not the way. And we can be healthy yeah. and robust and people can come into this as they are and still do well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was neat also to kind of like match with our data is that we've never had like significant differences in uh, like BMI, like using BMI as a measure. Um, mm -hmm. like between groups and using it as like a predictor's poor. I think it's in, like, it's a bit of a trap cause it's intuitive that you think like, Oh, if I'm like smaller then my strength to weight ratio will increase. It's like, well, yeah, not if right. you can't actually get your sessions in and can't generate power and you haven't like looked mm -hmm. at a grain in six weeks or something. Like that. <laughs> and but, in terms of BMI, yeah. like BMI is pretty terrible for yeah. most. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty bad overall, yeah, yeah. BMI just probably shouldn't be included moving forward, but that's my opinion. But I agree. Um, yeah. They do make the mention in the discussion portion of this paper, which I think is great, that they're when comparing this paper to past papers, uh, specifically, I think 1993, um, the level of climbers has risen dramatically. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the body fat percentage reported in 1993 was substantially lower. So the, while the body fat percentage has gone up in female climbers, their level of climbing has also risen dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this indicates that female climbers, at least the ones looked at in this study are trending toward a, you know, a more healthy 
body composition. And, and I think that's a great takeaway to remember that the strength is a big part of that strength to weight ratio. They're chasing what matters as opposed to yeah, things that don't matter and are probably pretty dangerous to pursue long term. Yeah. Lower body fat doesn't mean that you're going to perform better. Look it up. It's science. Yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, that 93, bo- the 1993 body mass note is more of a reflection of the symptom of the times and maybe not the cause of performance. So yeah, yeah. you can't consider the symptom and then also not think about the cause either. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Looking at the, uh, I think it's table three in the results, they include like the one way ANOVA P value for like body fat percentage is like 0.026. I think where it's like smallest in the elite group versus mm-hmm. the like two advanced. Uh, lower and higher groups but again that's one of those things where they the age for that group is also younger so it's like right. how much are we yeah like there's again like compounding of factors here where it's you can't just say that it's a simple one-to-one relationship or like control everything that's directing that but sorry i just wanted to point that one on there too no i think that's a great catch there um you know my body fat percentage was definitely lower when i was 14 years old <laughs> than it is now but but i'm absolutely stronger now oh, some of these people were negative two years old so. <laughs> in 93 <clears throat> uh they also mentioned that or they look at you know flexibility shoulder and hip mobility as well as lower limb power at mm-hmm. least how they were measuring it were not significant between the groups there was no significant difference between the groups um that flexibility part actually is one of the critiques I have. Um, you know, we keep papers, we keep seeing papers, Paul, that are looking, trying to find this link between flexibility and climbing ability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once again, in this paper, they reference back to that 2009 Nick Draper paper that we looked at in season one mm-hmm. and say, oh, maybe we just need to change the modality. Um and I just can't make sense of why we aren't seeing the adapted grant foot raise from that study in more right. studies. It's like people are just skipping right over it and looking for a new modality mm-hmm. um, and not finding anything. So I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And it, it, it kind of flies in the face in a lot of research where you build on the previous ones. Like the adapted grant foot right. raise, like, oh, we need to use this and build on this. This is the, one of the few that seems to show promise, right? And just we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm mind boggled that that it's just not showing up. Leave that for smarter minds than me. Science is a mystery. And another mystery to me is for the lower limb power. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of how they looked at this. I think there could have been a more robust way to look at it. Um, the counter movement jump with the hands on the hips. Sure, that's mm-hmm. completely lower body. But when in climbing is a climbing move only lower body we've seen the discus right. throw technique we pull with the arms and drive with the legs i think it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see both you know the counter movement jump with the hands on the hips but also like you know your standard counter movement jump where you drop into the drop you drop into the bottom of the jump your hands go behind you and you jump and throw your yeah. hands up like i think that would at least be interesting to look at because climbing never happens with just the lower body unless you know you're doing a run and jump and then you got to grab shit but and we did, Dale, didn't we, <laughs> Dale, didn't we look at a standing long jump? We did. Yeah. And we looked at it with, uh, with including like arm generation inside of it or without arm generation. And yeah, we didn't right. really find, uh, I didn't find any significant differences or significant right. correlation inside of that. Um, well, I rest my case that I am wrong. So <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's something we need to revisit. We had a smaller data collection when we were doing that also. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, you know, and I mentioned this in a, a previous episode, Paul, that I would be interested in seeing the power slap done with the legs in play as mm-hmm. well um, yeah. as a foot on kind of a thing, just to see how that coordination yeah. uh, of using leg and arm power at the same time as we do in climbing most of the time, see if it shows up. Yeah. And speaking of the power slap, um, you know, we're seeing this over and over. The power slap and finger strength prove to be good differentiators between the advanced and the elite groups. Um, 
I think every study we've looked at that tries to, you know, find the differences between climbing ability says finger strength and power slap. Which is cool in a way, you know, like we're yeah, starting to get yeah. a consensus. We know at least a general direction to take things if we're going to use the evidence-based moniker behind our coaching practices. Mm-hmm. Each of the two things we need to pursue from a strength and conditioning perspective. Yep, I think so. Dale, is this what our, I know for men in particular or for, you know, a mixed group, our data was lining up with this as well. Though we weren't looking at necessarily just the power slap at that point, we were looking at weighted pull-ups um, and the weighted pull-ups and the finger strength were showing um, to be good differentiators as well. Is that correct? Yeah, um, we definitely saw the Campus Max Reach power slap test as a significant predictor um, for boulder and sport climbing performance, more so on the boulder side. Okay. Um, then the, I think they the found the same thing side. here. I'm pretty sure also. Um, yeah. So in their first model, um, which is their unadjusted, uh, yeah, they have a significant difference there for boulder, but um, not for um, sport. And they don't get it really until they're at their like third uh, iteration of models. Okay. Let's talk about those iteration of models because I think these are kind of kind of fun. Um, yeah. use, they use a linear regression analysis to explain the variance and to show how improvement in these measurements is associated with an increase in ability, which I think is kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but can you explain to us, Dale, what a linear regression analysis is and how it then explains the variance? Sure. Um, so linear regression is a way of modeling a relationship between two variables. So like if you're trying to paint a mental picture of it, if you picture like a x-axis, y-axis, and a scatter plot of dots on it, you are taking that and trying to draw like a line of best fit through those points. Okay. Um, so you can have uh, in like a simple for- simplest form, like you could have like a single x variable trying to um, predict a uh, single Uh, y variable but you can also have like multiple x variables going into it um, which is what they're showing here when they're saying like adjusting for like some of skin folds in the second model or adding in model two plus uh, training per week and they're adding in like additional variables at that point Um, so it's a way of yeah using a relationship between uh, between two variables to kind of predict one based on one based on the other Um, and in the paper they use and pretty much in general, they use um, R-squared as like their um, measurement for the quality or like the predictive value of that model. And that's a uh, essentially how much the variance in your X variable is able to, or how much of the variance in your Y variable is uh, explained by the variance in your X variable. Mm, um, that's it. probably the easiest way to explain it. Um, I know this is sports science and it's like, it's a little different, but I know that um, when I first started building like, we built a bunch of uh, multiple linear regression models when we were developing the assessment. And the way we went about it, a very similar can I, approach. Can I just to how stop they, you sorry. for a second? Yeah. When you, yeah, yeah. when you say we, you mean you. <laughs> Dale I do mean me, but, a bunch. <laughs> but, but with, with uh, incredible guidance from the power company team. So, <laughs> um, so when we were building these, uh, we got like I went about it a similar approach to how they did, and um, I remember showing this to like or going about like my methods and like showing that to other people that like work in statistics and model building. And this is like a very hot button issue <laughs> where yeah. um, they talk about it in their um, statistical analysis stamp or st- statistical analysis section, um, where they mention that like the um, like grading scale, the IRCRA, like scale is still like an integer scale. So mm-hmm. it's a little goofy where we're looking at like one kind of continuous number where it's like 1.33945, something like that. And then your like output is like a integer grade number where it's like you don't mm-hmm. get like mm-hmm. 13.5 really. You get like 12, you get 14. And there's no... Uh, there's no like in between really inside of that. So from like a like actual mathematical methods perspective, it's a little bit it's a little strange. 
So like you're never going, you know, going into it essentially that you're never going to be able to explain all the variance in your outcome with your X variable. Like right. it's just, it's, it's a little strange because you always have that like um, break in it. If you're using a like linear regression approach, you can use other forms of regression to get around this a little bit. I don't want to completely sidetrack us talking about this. What um, you're saying is in this case, the numbers are not concrete. <laughs> I'm not even walking into that one. Oh. <laughs> but um, they're, they're trying to show that um, some things are statistically significant and good predictors of outcomes um, and that they get they become better predictors as they add more variables into those models, um, which is the same thing that we saw with our data. Um, it, this can turn into a whole messy thing where people get obsessed with like, yeah. If I if I improve my max hang by twenty pounds, I'm gonna climb V twelve and it and it makes yeah. people think in like a very transactional way. And that's they intentionally like try to avoid that inside of this paper. They mention it multiple times that like climbing's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I think they do a great job of that. They they do this cool thing within this section where they say a one centimeter improvement in the power slap is associated with this amount of improvement in your ability level. And when I yeah. read that, I was like, oh no. You could see people just reading that and then busting out their calculator and seeing like, <laughs> yeah. what do I need to do? What do I need to do? So that's from that's from the like uh regression coefficients. That's their like uh their beta values in the what is that table five? Um mm -hmm. and that's something that's actually like a helpful like you have to do that in when you apply linear regression to other messy scenarios like this. So if you have like, a, what's a good example? Say you have an analysis that's looking at like number of children. Like somebody doesn't have like a one and a half child or something like that. They either have one or they have two. <laughs> right. So you can, so you need to have like uh, using the like beta values, you can then look at like in a larger group, like say that you only studied like 30 people, but you're trying to figure out like what would happen in a group of a hundred you can start to see like long-term trends and like actual um, like outcome changes mm -hmm. with that using that information. So that I thought that was good that they included that in that actually, though it is dangerous. I understood why they were doing it. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. I, I didn't quite understand it um, in the way that you just explained it, but, but I did think it was interesting that they added it in there and also scary depending on who's reading the paper. <laughs> yeah. I was just for, uh, giggles kind of in that same section i went and pulled uh so there's like a bunch of different ways that you can do uh regression analysis and what you use it for and all this fun stuff but one of the things is like we talked about like kind of variance inside of groups and how like it's kind of messy to look at variance across like a range of grades because they're they're kind of in like discrete buckets really mm -hmm. and um i thought it would be good to go through i looked up the like central tendency for our data for like men and women at um all the different grades and try to do just an R squared off of like, or do like a linear regression and get an R, R squared score for um, like just using the like average from those groups. If you wanted to like do something really dumb and trick yourself into thinking that it was like a one for one <laughs> trade and like looking at those for women, it's like 0.93 and like, <laughs> and for men it's like 0.94. Like it's an incredibly great predictor on average. So that means it's explaining all hundred percent of their ability. Is that correct? Exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> no. Yeah. But it's on average. And then it's like when you look at the variances for those groups, it's like they're massive. So again, this is a total aside, but it's like how people can read these papers and see something and latch on to mm -hmm. kind of dumb conclusions or bad ways to take it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that's a rare thing. I think it's actually a pretty common thing to just latch onto something and run with it. So, so I appreciate the the attempt at a nuanced description of a quite confusing, messy thing. No, I think I think they did a great job of like they mentioned multiple times like climbing's complicated. There's a bunch of like other skill aspects mm -hmm. and things to other things to work on. I thought they did a really good job with it, and I I understand why they applied the given the grading skill that they're working with and the standardization of it, it's like, here's a simple way that many people could approach it um, that shows you like that the relationship improves as you add more variables to the model. So. Yep. yep. And we've been gathering, like we've mentioned, similar data 
Um, ours differs a little in that we're using a smaller edge for the power slap and we're doing a 10 second max versus peak finger strength, which is what they're looking at here. They're um, also doing it one handed, right? Yep. They're doing I one handed. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. They're pulling on and they had like a force transition cr- crane scale analog that they're pulling on and getting the three second. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm curious, Dale. Um, now that we have the numbers to look solely at female data, which is something we've been working toward this last year and a half, two years, um, how does our data ultimately compare to what's found here? Or what what useful can we see in our data by comparing it here? Um, I mean, we see a lot of the same things when we're looking at physical measurements, um, like finger strength, explosive power. Like These are great predictors, especially inside of bouldering. Um, let me go back to their table. Um, I, so both of those things are like even unadjusted, like without even including body mass. Like those are uh, significant predictors inside of their first mm. like unadjusted model. Um, we see good correlations with those as well, um, especially um, for women, both for women and men. But it, I think it's really important to like take a long-term approach to that again, and like not uh, think of it as trans- a transactional thing where it's like if I get it. To right. increase this much, then I'm going to have this much improvement in performance. But it is like a reminder that, like we we know this, like getting stronger fingers and being able to jump to higher holds is important in rock climbing, especially bouldering, where it relies on that more. Um, yeah, we when you first put out those numbers saying that the weighted pull up and the max hang were the best predictors that we were seeing in our numbers, um, I built the fingers plus proven plan based on that. Uh, but in that plan, I also say, you know, this is meant to supplement regular climbing practice. You know, these are these are important things. There's also some hip strength and hip mobility um, worked in there. Um, but it it should be in conjunction with actually moving. Yeah, yeah. I, again, going back to like climbing's complicated, and they're looking for like mm-hmm. what are significant predictors here. Um, but it's like it's really hard to come up with like a a plan even looking at that like say that they're significant okay like how do you go about programming uh like improvement in that factor in a way that's like correct for different people because like between their advanced uh l group and their elite group like that might look entirely different and where do people fall like inside that group are they like getting the highest uh measurement inside of their group are they getting the lowest like how -hmm. are you going to approach that it's not like it's interesting and it's good for coaches to obviously think about and for athletes to think about, but it's not, um, it's not prescriptive and, uh, it's not like immediately actionable and that's not, that's not the purpose of it. So, um, right. Yeah. We see, we see very similar, um, significant predictors as well as other stuff that they didn't look at the look at inside of this paper, obviously. Um, but yeah, for those measurements, we definitely see significant, um, improvements in those as people progress through the grade scales. Are we seeing anything in our data that that contradicts this paper? That contradicts it. Um, I don't think so, actually. Um, okay. I'd love to see. I'd love for them to. So, our assessment uses uh, like more um, sport-specific um, kind of measurements, and I'd love to see them collect more data in that realm, including including like using repeaters and uh, mm-hmm. like continuous hang and all of that stuff that we also use. Um, I mean, and foot on campus and stuff like that. My guess is that they weren't doing that because I th- believe it was a one-day symposium. Is that true, Paul? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because everything was done from like 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., whatever. Yeah, yeah. all tests are complete within a two-hour window. So Yeah, that's yeah, amazing. So like, Which yeah. is wild. Do, do yeah. the repeaters yeah, to failure right yeah. in the beginning and blow everybody out? Yeah, yeah. quick, go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> It's still wild we haven't seen a paper looking at weighted pull-ups and climbing performance. I know. I, I'm a little baffled by that as well. And it yet we see all this shit on social media, people trashing on weighted pull-ups because they're too slow and they don't match climbing mm-hmm. performance. And it's like, I feel like I'm – sorry, I'm about to go on a weighted pull-up rant here. Is that all right? <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> this is probably not really that related to this paper, but I've been stewing on this for a long time. <laughs> But, you know, if we look at the power slap, if we break it down into components, it's how much force can you generate 
in as little in as little amount of time. If we can generate mm-hmm. more force, we're going to be more powerful in the same amount of time. A way to yeah. pull up lets us generate more force. We need to look at this shit. That's all. People saying that we weighted pull-ups are worthless for climbing need to pump their brakes at least until we look at them. That's it. All right. That's my rant. I'm done. She's like an ant, man. She can lift a hundred times her own weight. For real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree, Paul. I, you know, it's, it's shown up as a good predictor for us and in our data. So it, and I think it makes sense. You know, it's one of the oldest ways we hear about training for climbing you know it's just a a really common sense way to go about it so power is force over time if you can generate more force and everything else stays the same you have more power exactly it's math and shit (laughs) it's math and shit look it up it's science (laughs) while we're critiquing though um i have a pretty petty critique i would like to throw out there and that's that i'm not a fan of the way the word recreational is used in this paper. They use it several times that confuses me. And even in the title, it says recreational advanced. Um, I don't know what the hell recreational advanced is. I think it confuses things, doesn't give us a clear way of comparing these findings to other papers. Why not just use the ability levels, the categories laid out by that IRCRA scale? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And, you know, these people went to a symposium about training. Like, I think it's a little bit different than recreational. You know, like these people, yeah, they take things seriously. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I didn't think about that. Yeah, they do mention exactly what you just said, Paul. They mention it in the discussion. And this is something I tell a lot of the athletes who are, like first timers taking our assessment, you know, new clients coming in that we're almost certainly, and this symposium was almost certainly biased toward people who really care about training for climbing. Mm -hmm. So, so it's possible that their numbers are a little inflated, um, just because they've trained these things up. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that's another important thing to, to keep in mind. Overall, I think this thing was was interesting. I think it's, the, you know, they made some really cool points. I think it's great to see finger strength and this power slap really kind of coming out as the big predictors that maybe we could be paying attention to. I hope we find some others as well as we, as we continue down this path. Um, I love that they compared it to past papers and are showing that even with a higher body fat percentage, they're, the athletes are still performing much better than they were, mm-hmm. you know, however many years ago, 1993 was. That's when I graduated high school. So to me, it was five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It's, you know, it's what we're looking for, right? The growing consensus on certain things we need to pursue. Just I, Again, I've said mm-hmm. I look at this from a coach perspective. What are the metrics I need to pursue and improve for the people I work with and for myself as a climber? And the consensus grows. We get more and more stronger evidence for certain things. It opens up paths for other things. But I think we're, like you said, as we work through this process of, you know, we're what, two and a half seasons or one and a half seasons in, we're start things are starting to move to the forefront and – I'm psyched on that. Yes, science. Absolutely. Um, Dale, anything else from you? Um, no, I I really like the paper as a whole. Um, I thought it was pretty detailed. I like their um, statistics approach. Um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was uh, like st- like sound, like mathematically sound. What they're going through makes sense. Um, and I thought that they were really practical in their recommendations from it and their discussion section mm. as well. Um, Same. And yeah, to Paul's point, I really think that that is something kind of to be proud mm-hmm. of as like a group of climbers overall, like for the sport in general, is that you, yeah. you're really starting to see like when you get to these discussions sections, it's uh, it's full of citations to like previous work. And it's like very nuanced. It's like, here's what we know. And you're seeing it over and over. Like, I feel like we're constantly, uh, we're, we always still hear that like, there's not, there's no research in climbing and like all of this stuff. And it's like, no, it's, it's really starting to develop and these guys are doing really good work with it. Um, and I mean, it's also 
uh, validating to like hear that they're getting really similar to results to like what we're finding in our own analysis of our own data, even yeah. though it's not published. But um, it's good to see that like a lot of a lot of coaching is coming to the same place and it's really getting more sound, um, getting technically better, and hopefully it helps us better serve people going forward. Absolutely. Um, Dale, thanks again for joining us. This was a lot of fun. I have a feeling it won't be the last time. Um, I think you're just going to become a, a regular guest on Breaking Beta. Yeah, I was about to say, like looking at all these tables and stuff, like, you know, I look at them, I try and make sense of them, but in what, <laughs> 30 minutes, you made more sense at this table than the 45 minutes I looked at just the table trying to figure this shit fucking out. So, And certainly there are people out there who are like, I wish these two yahoos <laughs> would actually understand what they're talking about. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here, Dale. This is great. You're filling that void for us. Happy to help when I can. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where it's 175 degrees right now. Uh, we may melt in the next day or two. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please tell all of your female friends who say they're too short to be a good climber that you have the perfect podcast for them. We will see you next week when we discuss chalking up and shaking out and whether science says that it's actually helpful or just a stubborn myth. Friction Lab is going to hate it. We'll see you all next week. It's done. You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Radio. 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 Radio.